Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Boost Your Biology podcast. My name is Lucas, and I'm the founder of Ergogenic Health. Together in this podcast series, we will go underground to explore cutting-edge health and human performance insights that you simply cannot search on Google to help you upgrade your existence. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Welcome, everyone. This is a very last-minute organized episode. Today, I have Nick Furion joining me in the studio. Today, we're actually here for a number of reasons. Obviously, I'm here to make a video for the following reasons. Number one, first and foremost, to all of those who personally know Leo um, or have been helped and have had or learnt a lot through his content. This is extremely uh, devastating news, the passing of Leo Longevity. At this point in time, we do not know the exact cause of his death. And this video interview with Nick is not going to be a prediction about what the cause of Leo Longevity's death was. The purpose of this particular interview is purely for educational purposes and in informational purposes, where there is oftentimes overlooked scope for uh, polypharmacy and the integration between um, performance-enhancing drugs, medications, supplements, and where things could potentially go wrong. So, Nick, welcome to the show, man. First of all, did you want to introduce yourself and let my audience know who you are? <laughs> Yeah, g'day, mate. My name's Nick. I think I've introduced myself on one of your podcasts before, but I'll just give you a really brief rundown. I am a former pharmacist, medicinal chemist, acad- scholastically, academically. I'm a qualified naturopath, nutritionist, or Bachelor of Human Nutrition, 
Bachelor of Health Science in Complementary Medicine, Masters of Pharmacy, Graduate Diploma in Medicinal Chemistry, and future PhD candidate, got my mentor and everything sorted. So that's me professionally. I'm a bodybuilding enthusiast, one-time competitor. I've uh, been involved in online fitness communities for oh, since probably 2002, since I graduated high school. It's a good 21 years. Built some notoriety as Furian. That's my handle that I used one time in anabolics forums in the Aussie corner. So that was where I first did it. And, and since then, I've joined many other forums, forum discussions, things like that. Um, I'm personality as myself, and I don't really consult or do any additional work on the side other than what I do professionally. But yeah, that's probably who I am. And yeah, I'll also pay my respects to, to Leo. I think his name was Laith Algaz from what I was reading. Always good. I, it's, I feel he should reverence to the dead and, and the past. And yeah, condolences to his friends and family. Nick, I guess what we can do for this uh, interview, and thanks for sharing all that. I guess what I wanted to discuss is where things can potentially go wrong and why... I guess what you said before in regards to in clinical pharmacy and applications for various dosage protocols and things like that, maybe start out by looking at by calculating dosages for particular ingredients, some of the pharmacokinetic interactions. What yeah. are some things that people need to consider? Yeah, probably a good place to start with that in particular is as a pharmacist, one of the one of the primary sort of roles that, that we do. I know your dad's a pharmacist. He can probably attest to this. People say, what are you doing beyond the counter that takes so long? There's, there's numerous different things, but one of, the, one of the more important things is checking for drug interactions. Now, we do that in the community setting as, as well as the hospital setting and taking a medication reconciliation from the patient and then assessing new drugs, new medicines are prescribed existing medicines are prescribed and even troubleshooting a new symptomology that might come up after the introduction of a new drug or after the change in a drug. From a professional perspective, you, at the education level, you obviously have to integrate pharmacology with biology. And, and so there's, and then also chemistry in there as well. So there's multiple layers to understanding the fundamentals that underpin assessing a drug's safety in terms of its scope for interactions and assessing any one patient at one time. And so I can remember, and you probably can yourself, in first-year subjects doing like chemistry 1A and, and anatomy and physiology and learning about e glycoprotein efflux pumps or like specific molecules and like where a hydroxyl group fits on a specific benzene ring. You think to yourself back then, that makes no sense to me. But when you're actually applying it in practice, those fundamentals in that education become more relevant. And like you actually, well, not necessarily subconscious, it's more of an innate knowledge that you now have that you can, you can then apply. And so like I'd think back to like identifying a drug interaction and or a theoretical drug interaction that you can then go and look at make recommendations to the prescribing physician to change whatever medicine, whatever it is. And you go back and you go, okay, that's because of that particular interaction there, because that molecule is in that particular confirmation, then we can make some sort of theoretical association that we might be able to go and follow up on. 
Now we can use like pharmacy software. Lobs has a interaction integration in it. And there's a few other ones that do even some of the dispensing software does now, but realistically it's that fundamental knowledge that you can't go and pull a research paper on. You can go and look at case studies and things like that, but to have that knowledge of things like your disease states and very specific metabolic pathways or things like even like hydration status of a patient, all those types of things, they're not anything that you can go and become educated on in a YouTube video. They're things that you have to take 50 tutorials, sit through 120 lectures, then get assessed at the end. So where I'm going with this is that whilst I'm not positioning myself as an expert in this area, I'm positioning myself as somebody who's gone through that education and then can understand that. And so when presented with very specific nuanced cases that might have potential for a drug interaction causing a deleterious outcome, those people who uh, don't have that education might not necessarily be able to pick it and might not necessarily have that complete scope to to be able to draw that. So there's some very good education sources out there, some very intelligent individuals that don't necessarily have those tertiary qualifications. But what I'm trying to say is that when you zoom in on the very specific patient as an individual, that's where you've got to work this this professional approach, which really should be left to the professionals. So that's a bit of a preface. I've gone right off on a tangent here, but yeah. So what I thought would be a good way to describe drug interactions, <clears throat> whether they're with PEDs or whether they're with drugs that are with taken alongside PEDs, is probably describe the two main interactions that two main sorts of interactions that can occur at the user level. So there's a pharmaceutic interaction that can occur where I might be compounding two drugs and one becomes inert in the IV bag, or whatever it is, but that's not really relevant. And there's also um, interaction that could be at a level at the genetic level where someone might be a genetic outlier and have the caffeine that metabolizes it probably the most sort of uh, frozen up there, mate. So I just had to. Oh, shit. Sorry, just cut out. I think it's back now. It's back now. There you go. Good timing. Okay. Easy, mate. We just had a little network glitch there, but yeah, continue on, Nick. Yeah, as I was saying, the different types of interactions, the ones that are going to show, occur at the consumer level. You've got, as I said, two different types of pharmacodynamic interactions and pharmacokinetic interactions. So pharmacokinetics themselves are what your body does to a drug supplement, whatever it is that you put into your body. So they, they're that's what pharmacokinetics are. Pharmacodynamics are what the drug does to your body, where it goes. Pharmacokinetics can be broken down into what's the acronym ADMI, which is absorption, distribution, metabolism, excretion. And you can have interactions at any level. In a pharmacokinetic interaction, you can have it at any level of those. So you can have it at the absorption level, distribution, metabolism, excretion. The absorption level, you can have it, absorption meaning like, from the mode of administration. So absorptions as well as oral, sublingual, transdermal, you can even have parenteral. So you have IM or intramuscular or subcutaneous. So that's the absorption phase of the pharmacokinetics is that moving into the blood, basically. So 
probably the most common ones are oral drug interactions through the absorption phase. So you can have interactions with the gastric level, probably one that's not, it's, it's common in clinical practice, but I guess in the sort of world of performance enhancing drugs and image enhancing drugs, um, uh, like your thyroid preparations, like your T3 and T4, they can they can form covalent adducts with minerals, meaning that when you swallow them and you have a mineral concomitantly, so let's just say the patient who's taking thyroxine for a very specific indication, not someone who's using a PED because I don't have zero advocation for anyone using PEDs. From a professional perspective, no one should be doing that at all. But let's just say that this person who's taking thyroxine is also taking a calcium supplement or a zinc supplement or an iron supplement or a multivitamin with all of the above in it. And they're doing that every day with, with their, with their thyroid, their, both thyroxine or their lyrothyronine, the T4 or T3 respectively. Let's just say they're doing that. When they swallow those two, the T3 will literally form a adduct, an irreversible adduct with the T4 or the T3. And some of it might not necessarily be absorbed. Now, with, with T4, for instance, for its clinical indications, when it's being used for its clinical indications, T4 has got a very long half-life. So it's very hard to, to nail a drug level, a therapeutic drug level for that. So where someone's um, taking T4 and their indicated condition and they're doing, doing that, their blood levels might not necessarily be very stable. And some days they might not necessarily take the iron or the whatever it is. And then, so you get these fluctuations and they'd be represented in the therapeutic drug levels until three months time. So that's one example. Like, and obviously where people are using thyroxine or other things like that off label, and they're not cognizant of this very specific interaction. This is just one, by the way, at the absorption level, that when they're not cognizant of that, they. Just to jump in there, Nick. So what you're explaining here is like, a pharmacokinetic interaction at the absorption level. This is absorption, distribution, metabolism, excretion. So these are the four. And you're talking about the effects by concomitantly using thyroxine, the hormone, the thyroid itself can Mm -hmm. have a a massive variation in the efficacy and potency of that medication when used in conjunction with a mineral, something as basic as a mineral supplement. Yeah, mate. Yeah. Even high mineral containing foods have some evidence to show that they can do that as well. So let's just say, for instance, the the silly person taking T3 for image enhancing purposes, let's just say they're doing that. They're taking T3. They might be taking zinc or something like that alongside it, and they're getting 5% of it absorbed. They're never getting their thyroid levels measured. They might be inducing clinical hypothyroidism as a result of not absorbing it, but absorbing just enough to shut down your TSH. So the types of things like that might, they might happen. And I dare say that there's probably somebody out there that's doing this right now, uh, preparing for a bodybuilding comp or whatever it is that, that, that could be happening. And even as part of that, Nick would be even like supplementing with big doses of biotin can massively distort the TSH reading. It can give like a yeah. false positive TSH. Like that's another example. Yeah, man. Well. Yeah, yeah. And these are particular, as I said, this is that's just one example. At that sort of really nuanced level, these are things that like might they don't they're not discussed like really ever. Some people might know about them, but being able to distinguish those in a clinical situation or even in a situation where you're going out on your own like a cowboy, then we don't 
you you might not necessarily consider it. And like you're talking about people getting their information from like YouTube's videos and stuff, like and like literally just going out on their own. So like it's it's literally nobody knows. You wouldn't know how common that is. But yeah, that's so that's the absorption level. The distribution level. So the distribution is quite literally moving from one tissue or one compartment into the plasma, into the blood, then into another tissue. So that's the distribution phase of the pharmacokinetics. Now you, you can have, well, they're not necessarily interactions. You can have perturbations at the distribution level. You can have interactions at the distribution level if something's being inhibited at like the hepatic level or at the gastrointestinal system. But looking more specifically at like um, where you have the picture of the drug's pharmacokinetic profile and there is a huge perturbation to it, like where it's completely changed. So things like hydration status when you're dosing a drug, especially one that has an acute effect, that, that can play a large role. There's a phenomenon called ion trapping. I don't know if you've ever heard of that before. Trapping, it's probably most relevant in breastfeeding mothers just because some drugs can accumulate in the breast milk. But in saying that, it can occur like on, on a level that can predispose adverse effects depending on the situation. Now, ion trapping, what it is, basically, if you've got a, a weak acid drug or a strong acid drug and it moves into a basic tissue, it becomes stuck in that tissue, for want of a better word, or trapped. Now, or if you have a basic drug goes into an acidic tissue, vice versa. Basic meaning it's the P, the pH. So when I say acidic or basic, the pH though. So the lower the pH, the more acidic, the higher, the more basic. Um, so things like your NSAIDs, people use NSAIDs all the time. They like the NSAIDs themselves in chronic use or overdose can predispose like gastric ulcer and sometimes gastric bleeds where people can become iron deficient and they don't know what the cause is. Sometimes they'll find out it's a a gastric ulcer long down the track because they they might not necessarily, they might overlook their acid reflux or whatever it is. Now, NSAIDs, acids, and they can, in the strong acid environment of your stomach acid being, what's it, pH of two to four, that'd probably take your skin off your finger. It will, when it gets into the epithelial cell, inside the epithelial gastric epithelial cell it um it's significantly more basic in there it can become trapped in there over time you can accumulate more of the drug in that epithelial cell now the the epithelial cell is responsible for production of prostaglandins that line the mucosal that mucosal layer of the of the stomach that protects those cells from ulceration there are instead of cox2 inhibitors predominantly cox2 inhibitors and uh, and but they're not necessarily selective to cox2 so you can cox1 is generally in basically where i'm going with this long story is uh, the other distribution of the drug might accumulate in the epithelial cell and inhibit that production of the of the prostaglandin thereby predisposing the the ulceration so yeah, that's where we're going with that one. So two seconds, mate. Do you mind? Yeah. Good. Yeah. 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 So that's obviously a consideration of the distribution level in the pharmacokinetics and where you get aberrant drug distribution, such as the NSAID example, that the whole scope of drug interactions and adverse effects 
might not necessarily present a very clear clinical picture. So that's just another example. Then obviously the next step is metabolism. That's the big one. The drug metabolism is, if you were to look at any sort of literature or through case studies, whatever it is, the vast representation of those is metabolic interactions between drugs, between supplements, is the metabolic, like the metabolic interactions, is that could that be referring to some of the metabolites of the drug? Like, for example, caffeine's major metabolites. One of them is parazanthine, then theophylline, theobromine. Is that metabolism yeah. like metabolites? Yeah, mate. Yeah. So, at the metabolism level, you've got drugs that are like prodrugs. Like, for instance, just out of thin air, tamoxifen. That it's a prodrug to four hydroxy tamoxifen. Tamoxifen itself does have anti-estrogenic activity before hydroxytamoxifen is has significantly greater and it's more selective as well in the tissues obviously via the receptor so that's one sort of metabolic pathway where it's bioactivation then you've got where it's drug degradation obviously and degrading like that and then you've got yeah like your um like you you mentioned your your active metabolites that might not necessarily be the actual drug the desired drug molecule itself they might but they might have a secondary effects those and they're sometimes the the most overlooked thing so having that complete sphere of the of the metabolic profile or even the putative metabolic profile and taking into consideration the things like we've already mentioned in the prior steps of metabolism of, of pharmacokinetics that's where you have to take this whole top-down bird's eye approach to, to assessing these things yeah at the metabolic level obviously you're, you've got your phase two, phase one, phase two enzymes. Um, you've also got your efflux pumps. Uh, one enzymes tend to be the most, have the most effective effect on a drug, whether that is inhibiting its metabolism so that you get too high blood levels, inducing yeah. its metabolism so you get too low drug levels, um, or it's inhibiting its bioactivation so you're not getting that yeah. specific specific drug Yeah. So let's discuss some of that because I'm obviously, and I think I've covered it a few times on a few of my videos, like you're referring to the SIP enzymes here, right? The CYP384, yeah. CYP2D6, like yeah. these are, and there's also a big genetic variance with some mm-hmm. of these enzymes. A lot of like, a lot of herb drug interactions. The, I guess the biggest one is like St. John's wort. I know we've spoken mm-hmm. about St. John's wort, the mm-hmm. hyperforin content of that herb. And this is again, major inter inter-individual variability, for example, mm-hmm. something like St. John's wort, let's look at product A versus product B. Product B has a higher standardization to hyperforin, mm-hmm. whereas product A, for example, has no hyperforin. And so the interaction between product A and a medication that's metabolized by that CYP3A4 pathway is going to be heavily impacted. So this is something, yeah, really important. Yeah, definitely something really important in, in sort of experimental models. They St. John's wort is probably the primary, like it's like the spanner in the works type herb that'll just go in there because yeah, it's got CYP2D6 inhibits, induces CYP3A4, also inhibits P-glycoprotein. That's, but like not everyone's taking St. John's wort, but there's, it's, that's in terms of the scope of what could go wrong. That's one of them. The, another one is grapefruit juice. There's the polyphenolic compounds in that. I think it's called dihydroxybergamotin is one of the main ones, but they're all very similar shapes and they actually, uh, they inhibit CYP3A4 and, uh, and do so quite potently. So it's where they, 
measure potency of how it inhibits a drug, and this is something that I would look at when I'm looking for a potential interaction, is they look at the KI or the affinity for that particular enzyme. And obviously there's those enzymes, the cytochrome P450 enzymes there, they do oxidation, hydroxylation reduction and monooxygenase, hydroxylation, I've said that one. In any one sort of molecule, your whatever that outcome to that is by inhibiting that, it will either increase a drug le- increase a drug level, reduce that bioactivation. So as I was going, we'll go back to grapefruit juice, for instance. A strong chip three yeah. A4 inhibitor. It's, they put the labels on you on some of the drugs that it inhibits. Grapefruit juice is just there's hundreds of CYP3 or inhibitors and some very strong ones. Grapefruit juice is just because it's a juice, like you can go and buy that from the supermarket and it's there. It just happens to have the active compounds in enough concentration to, to have a clinical interaction. Drugs, you don't know extraction ratios. And as you mentioned, you don't know the this very specific standardization for any one constituent. So the herbs themselves, where, you've, where they've got like a hundred to one extract, they might've concentrated that in there. You don't actually know. So like you could look at something like a very specific polyphenol that might inhibit an enzyme, whatever that is, and it's been at a low level. And you look at the concentration required to inhibit that potently, and you might actually reach that with with a concentrated extract. So yeah, that's at that 450 level, that's particularly problematic. A family member who's on anti-epileptic medications and the shortages of keftin, Lexin at the moment in Australia, in amoxicillin, who's given clarithromycin. Clarithromycin can inhibit CYP3A4 throughout his carbamazepine dosing, and he was sleeping. And obviously, in a finely tuned epileptic patient, that's particularly problematic because it takes months to get it stabilized again. So that's another one. Tamoxifen is a strong inhibitor of CYP3A4. People don't often like consider that in terms of an interaction and where people might just be haphazardly throwing this in into a particular stack. Here's a quick little message to all men listening into today's show. Do you want to double your energy levels, boost motivation and increase your focus? If so, you may be interested in my epic men's energy program I've recently launched called Limitless. Now, Limitless is an exclusive 12-week program for men who want to go from feeling tired, unmotivated, or burnt out to highly energetic, driven, and focused. Within the program, I will analyze your own unique biology and lay out a fully personalized health protocol so that you can finally unlock peak physical and cognitive performance. Over the 12 weeks, you will have direct access to me to ensure your results, as well as the chance to join me live twice a week to ask me anything relating to health protocols and discover cutting-edge men's health info to keep you at the top of your game. Now, spots in this program are extremely limited, so if you're interested in finding out more, make sure you go to bit.ly, that's B-I-T, dot l y forward slash limitless program to reserve the next available call to see if you're a good fit that's b i t dot l y forward slash limitless program you'll also find this link in my bio on my instagram profile and also my youtube channel 
As part of that as well, Nick, this can be either a positive thing or a negative thing. For example, this can amplify the efficacy or the potency of certain drugs or reduce the intensity yes. potency or efficacy. So whether or not it actually um, induces the enzyme, meaning that it'll accelerate its metabolism. Yes. And obviously then the next step is excretion, I'd imagine. So metabolism excretion, reducing the, I guess, like the active, the time in which it's active or the time in which it's maintains its peak yeah. blood concentration level. Uh, but then like other things that come into play and the whole other area that no one really talks about is the impact of the microbiome and yep. how yep. that can also influence supplement drug metabolism as well. Yeah. And then that's essentially an unknown as it is now. There's very select drugs that necessarily derive direct therapeutic effect through bioactivation or degradation in the microbiome. So we're, we're sort of out, out of our realms. They're called postbiotics, right? This is postbiotic almost. Yeah, that's what they're calling them now. And it's a relatively new area. Yeah. But well, yeah, so where I was going with that, as you were saying, it can, can, it can be used for purposes of boosting drug levels. For instance, the COVID drug, Paxlovid, which is what's it called? Ovir and Ritonavir. So Nermatrelavir is the protease, the 3CL-like protease inhibitor. And then Ritonavir is a polymerase inhibitor. The ritonavir is lit, it's an antiviral, like what it does, but it's literally been put in there to potently inhibit CYP3A4 at the same time as taking the, the other component of it. So it's quite literally only in there for its pharmacokinetic interaction to, to boost that drug level. But obviously, boosting the drug level in that situation is a beneficial thing. Let's just say someone, for instance, was using androgens and they had elevated cholesterol the doctor put them on simvastatin or atorvastatin and then they decide that they want to cowboy out a pct and they throw in tamoxifen in there they end up getting sore muscles and they don't know what it is and then they go to the gym they have a really hard session then all of a sudden their urines turn coke color and they still don't know what it is they're kind of ignoring it they go and ask a few friends on the forums, they, they give them some sort of skew with answers. What could be going on there is hemolysis. And, and let's just say that person's also taking a benzo and they might have an opioid for a pain or maybe they abuse opioids, who knows. You're pushing yourself further and further to the, uh, to the most deleterious effects of rhabdomolysis. And in a, it started at an interaction with two drugs that you don't necessarily associate with these sorts of manifestations. This so is, that's, yeah. This is really important. And also as part of this, Nick, maybe like just for the everyday person, let's look at, or I guess let's look at other, you mentioned androgens affecting cholesterol parameters. And then like, it's all about developing these ancillary stacks to combat the negative effects of some of these PEDs. Like other PEDs, I know you mentioned have had sympathetomimetic effects. So enhancing the sympathetic nervous system action. Mm. And then for some people, they will use be like benzodiazepines or things that have a sympathetic, I think it's like a adrenolytic effect accelerating. So let's discuss that, the sympathetic side to this. Yeah. So, I mean, the whole androgen sort of adverse effect profile, as we put it, like it's not necessarily something that, you know, in a clinically relevant acute or chronic setting, has a great body of research. It's generally a semblance of 
necessarily the most reliable things. We do have some high-dose androgen studies that we can work with there. But in terms of painting the very specific mechanistic roles that, that can predispose androgen adverse effects, we can really only draw it down, obviously, to what we mentioned before as changes in cholesterol and then changes in your renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, whether that's directly or indirectly. In terms of the sympathetic outflow that might be coming secondary to some sort of psychoactive effect that we don't necessarily have the great body of literature to be able to be able to substantiate that. Anyone who's advocating the use of anything like that in in that sort of a setting is really just assembling some sort of um, putative therapeutic strategy that might not necessarily have any substantiation. I couldn't speak to anything with any degree of confidence to say that this does this. And you would take that to ameliorate that. So people talking about taking beta blockers, nabivalol or something like that alongside an androgen to reduce the, the inotropic effects or the chronotropic effects. So your heart force and your heart rate. We don't know the very specific mechanism in which that might be occurring. It might, it might not necessarily be the androgen itself. It could be something else in the whole, in the whole drug stack, or it could be something that you're readily predisposed to, but the capacity to assess those is is really sort of clouded when you're looking at it from that perspective. And if you were to go to a specialist and, and request a beta blocker prescription, you're not going to meet the therapeutic indications for it unless you have heart failure or if post-MI or post-myocardial infarction or you've, your, your blood pressure is uncontrolled with first-line agents. So when you go have a look at the therapeutic guidelines that would dictate the practice of a cardiologist or even a GP. They're not going to pick those things because they don't fit that picture. And then when you go and have a look at how those therapeutic guidelines were assembled, there's a great deal of data and very robust algorithms that are basically fit those in there. So if you're just going to go hand select that because its mechanism seems like it is perfect. Oh, nabivalol is beta-1 selective. It's not a beta-2 receptor antagonist, so I might not necessarily gain fat or my, my, my beta-2 beta receptor agonist might not necessarily be antagonized by taking that. Well, you, you're taking a drug that's therapeutically indicated for somebody who either has asthma or can't tolerate any other beta blockers. And generally, that's a patient who has had a heart attack or is, has heart failure. And so that's with a whole body of evidence behind it to substantiate doing that. Yeah, I'm all for off-label use of things where there is sound and very specific evidence behind it, or it's being monitored by a professional in, in a clinical setting. Because I don't know, like the, these drugs do look safe on paper, but until they've been assessed for you as an individual and you're specific indication you won't ever know and it's yeah you're playing with fire yeah this is really critical information and even as part of that i was just thinking about some other pathways as well that are often less discussed we've got the what about the blood pressure side of things because that's oftentimes a major issue for those that mm. are using like performance enhancing drugs sometimes testosterone can have an impact i'd imagine mm. in supra physiological doses may affect 
the RAS system. Yeah. Maybe talk about some other compounds like oxandrolone, maybe. I don't know. Any, yeah. any other ones that have an effect on blood pressure? Yeah. So, I mean, like the effect on blood pressure, the most of the evidence that's been clinically assessed or experimentally assessed uses testosterone and like there is some that use other sort of androgen derivatives but they the common theme amongst them seems to be that the ras activation but there's also another pathway that's that potentially might be at the origin of renal kidney ras activation because we've got evidence that there's ras activation at the cardiac level that an increased collagen deposition synthesis in the cardiac tissue via androgens but the other pathway is an eicosanoid metabolic pathway and uh, i did write down the very specific very no, specific it, factors eicosanoid you're referring to is in a it's a prost- type of prostaglandin is that correct the type of prostaglandin yeah yeah so the eicosanoid the one specifically indicated but it's not necessarily the only one there seems to be maybe more it's called 20 h e t e and Androgens seem to be able to induce the activation of 20-HETE, and that in very specific tissues that will either have a vasoactive or a vasodilating or vasoconstrictive properties. In the kidneys, a vasoconstriction there would would cause a um, cause RAS activation as a result of the uh, vasoconstriction of the renal bed. But it also these are it, it, Ecosinoids seem to be their vasoactivity seems to be largely predicated on the available vasoactive transmitters or molecules in the blood at the time. 20-HETE seems to accentuate vasoconstriction in the presence of noradrenaline, serotonin, and endothelins. You, let's just say, if you're inducing the these particular vasoactive molecules causing vasoconstriction in very specific tissues, and you have some sort of predisposition to clot formation, or this might be the thing that pushes it over the edge. And let's just say it's something that's building up, and then you have a sympathomimetic agent, be it an amphetamine, a beta-2 adrenergic agent like clenbuterol or something like that. Your himbine, or is it different? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, himbine, yeah, or even like a serotonergic agent, an SSRI, a TCA, those types of things. I can see those often being used off label for purposes that aren't for antidepressants. That might be the very thing that tips you over. And let's just say, yeah, like on that sort of serotonin pathway, you're taking serotonin, SRI, you might be taking a tramadol or something like a pain medication that's also got some serotonin or adrenaline reuptake capacity. You're predisposing coagulation or thrombus formation there, taking a, an androgen, you might be, all, all those things in concert might just be the thing that allows the clot to acutely form. And then that, that could be what causes the stroke or the heart attack. You don't know. You don't know. And these are, it's never, it would never be cut and dry. You know what I mean? And if you, and especially when you consider the amount of drugs that people are taking, it's not going to be, it's not going to be any one thing. It really can never be any one thing. It's whether that's atherosclerotic plaque disease or coronary artery disease, whether it's, that's already there, whether it's these very specific drug interactions or adverse effects that aren't necessarily so obvious or have a very obvious clinical effect at any one stage. We see like 
autopsy reports and things like that of the dying bodybuilders. And you, an autopsy report can't necessarily identify the cause of a clot. They can see the size of a clot, the location of a clot, and they can make inferences. It's this sort of mechanisms that underpin this, that they're not going to help dead people and identify what the causes of death. But these are sorts of things that should be in consideration of people using these polypharmacy drugs without me advocating the use of them at all. Yeah. Also, as part of that, Nick, we'll have to wrap up soon, but I guess as part of that, in regards to safety around understanding your biochemistry as an athlete, whether an athlete, a bodybuilder, or somebody that actually just really cares about their health, how they should really prioritize getting routine blood work done every three to six months or so, or even perhaps even more frequently. I know that you recently did a blood test result you sent through your adrenaline adrenaline score. <laughs> yeah, uh, look, this, I would highly recommend you being very transparent with your treating uh, practitioner, the treating qualified practitioner. <laughs> and in terms of your, you, there's this, if you were to get just your basic metabolic panel and lipids, they tend to pick up. You can get some very nuanced things if you identify any pathology in those, but they tend to pick up most things. If you have aberrations in your lipids, which tend to be like probably in the sort of scheme of monitoring things, like your lipids are probably going to be the most affected depending on what you're actually, what drugs you're actually using they're probably going to be the most effective, but things like your, your renal panel, your full blood count, these are all things like, I'm sure, that, as I said, there's some very good educational materials and edu- educators, I guess that's the new term that people are calling themselves, online that can direct you to this. Like I don't attest to any of their their methods or anything like that, but there's good information, precautionary information for those sorts of things. I don't want to be in the realms of giving advice, so are on the side of caution. But as I said, if your treating physician is is doing regular bloods, then a basic metabolic panel and lipids should be able to pick up anything untoward. Yeah. Yep. There was one other thing that I thought we'd mention, mate, if you still got time. It was it's got to do with supplements because we didn't really cover that very much. Oh, yeah. Supplements themselves, they it's not necessarily regulated to the degree in which medicines obviously aren't it's very obvious but always the supplements themselves like i've been involved in supplement formula formulation i'm still doing it i've got my companies on hold at the moment relocating story for another time but the, uh, the supplements themselves like where you're looking at components of plants herbals nutritional supplements whatever it is and you're looking to exploit pharmacokinetics to increase bioavailability. That can be problematic if you're taking a medicine alongside that. Now, one thing that I see that annoys me immensely is supplement formulators think that piperine, 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 the black pepper extract, they think that's some sort of bioavailability skeleton key. (laughs) They think it does everything. They'll just throw in black pepper. With any other random, yeah, like there's, there's in there with amino acids. Like our body literally has transporters for amino acids. We don't need any. The piperine's not going to do really much there. But, but yeah, piperine, for example, like piperine, it inhibits specific uh, glucuronidation enzyme, like the phase two. So they're not necessarily 
hugely problematic, but they can be. They can have clinical manifestations with specific interactions, sulfur transferations, uh, sulfur transferases, CYP2D6 and CYP2D6. There's quite a number of drugs that are metabolized by CYP2D6, quite a lot of psychoactive drugs here, anti, antidepressants, things like that. Now, piperine, like as, as we've both just laughed at, it's just thrown into supplements everywhere. So people would never even consider that. I had I had a family member, another one, who was taking just started taking cholesterol medication, was taking curminoid extract with piperine. She was taking and what, a bunch of other dose, supplements. Dose of the piperine is like one to ten milligrams, is it? Yeah, I think it was ten milligrams. It was in there. Yeah, normally it's five to ten. From memory, I don't know. Like it's it's as I said, like people are throwing it in there as haphazardly as just some sort of bioavailability. Which realistically, that dose of ten milligrams, it sounds tiny, but realistically, yeah. like. How would you achieve 10 milligrams of piperine from having pepper on your meals? Like it's exactly, and that's where I'm going back before. Like grapefruit juice, yeah, it has it in there, but like you concentrate that yeah. down and it'll have stupid amounts more. Black pepper, who's going to go have a full shake that's full of black pepper to get the 10 milligrams of piperine in there and whatever other alkaloids are in there as well? And that's just another example. And where I was going with that, that, that drug interaction was subclinical or early signs of rhabdomyolysis where she was taking i think it was a torvastatin no was it resuvastatin it was resuvastatin why why did that occur is it because black pepper reduced the excretion rate or reduced yes yeah reduced the degradation so the metabolic profile so it goes in there as resuvastatin becomes some sort of resuvastatin glucuronidation conjugate and then that particular step, which essentially stops it from inhibiting HMG-CoA reductase, that particular step is inhibited by, via that. It's also a P-glycoprotein efflux inhibitor as well. So if it gets in, you've got P-glycoprotein pumps everywhere, it might get stuck in a compartment. So that, that's how that occurred. And that presented, like it had emergency physicians baffled. It presented with elevated creatinine, like AST at and ALT over 1,000 units. And that's how that presented. And like the because that medication reconciliation wasn't necessarily done, I'm not going to toot the horn of pharmacists here, but wasn't necessarily done by a pharmacist at the emergency level. It, it wasn't picked up. And that, that could happen to anybody. Yeah. yeah, that's critical information. Man, that was extremely jam-packed with knowledge bombs. Nick, so we're gonna to have to we're gonna to have to wrap up, and I'm sure. Look, my audience will have gained a lot, and hopefully learnt a lot from what you've shared. Um, if there are some relevant articles, I know you mentioned the 20 HETE. I'll leave mm-hmm. that linked in show notes. I've actually already come across some articles as I was listening yep. to you, so we'll make sure to leave that linked in the show notes. But we'll have to get you back on again. Maybe we'll have to get you back on to talk about some of the things that we've been chatting about in regards sure. to flavonoids and discovering new ingredients, pulling out alkaloids from products and stuff like that. But if people want to connect with you, where can they find you online? They can find me on my Instagram. It's just Fury and M Farm. As I said, I'm just a dude in the background. Like I I don't have a YouTube channel. I never put any, you might find some pictures of my children up on my story from time to time, but yeah, that's why I'm like, my day job takes enough time. Being a father takes enough time. I like to be able to build some notoriety like that and maybe one day do it. But for the time being, I'm happy being a background dude. But hey, look, if I got time and people have got questions that I feel would fit into some sort of professional ethical capacity where I wouldn't 
want to overstep anything professionally, I'd be happy to answer any questions or, or whatever, whatever that information you want to try and bleed out of me, mate. <laughs> so Nick, thanks so much for coming on the show. And guys, thanks for tuning in. I look forward to seeing you guys in the next episode. Thank you everyone for joining in to today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology. This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you.